From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a poignant reunion. John Castillo, who lost his son Kendrick in the shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch, visits his late son's robotics team. When I look at the robot, it reminds me of him. I get emotional. Hopefully, these kids will pick up the torch and they'll live their life as Kendrick did do great things with robotics and move into aerospace like he wanted to do. Also coming up, it's Plastic Week on our show. Today, designing a better disposable coffee cup and a better six-pack ring. The biggest challenge is that we enjoy our beer camping on riverways at the ocean. So how do you make a ring that survives the cooler but dissolves if it ends up in a lake? Plus, a uniquely Colorado crop that was nearly wiped out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with a poignant reunion at STEM School Highlands Ranch, where about four months ago, student Kendrick Castillo was murdered. Last week, his father, John, showed up at a meeting of the robotics team. Kendrick was a key member. So was his dad. It's my first time back since our son's lost his life, and I was a the coach and lead mentor on the team, and I wanted to see how they're doing, and support them any way I can. How are they doing? They're doing well. The team is growing exponentially. There's a lot of new faces. Very pleased. We are standing not far from the robot, correct? The robot. Yes, we are. Your son worked on that robot. Yes, he did. And how is it to look at that and be in such close proximity to his passion? Well, you know, it's it's powerful. It's a... Reminds me of him being in the space is difficult, but, um, you know, it brings me joy knowing that he was a good leader and a hero for the school and the community. So when I look at the robot, it reminds me of him. I get emotional. Hopefully these kids will pick up the torch and they'll live their life as Kendrick did and do great things with robotics and move into aerospace like he wanted to do and carry on his legacy that way. I asked how the team is doing. I guess I'm curious how you're doing. I'm doing, you know, every day is a struggle. I'm not going to lie to you. I, um, I'm advocating for school safety and uh, radical change in what we've done since Columbine. Um, there's been incremental improvements, and I applaud those. But in the time that we're living in, I think we need to go to, you know, school safety 2.0 and ramp things up. And, and that's kind of what I'm advocating when I'm not grieving. So it's a very difficult process. I mean, I uh, I have days where I just want to shut the door and not see anyone. And then I wake up and I have a new charge that I do in honor of my son. But I'm not going to lie, it's been difficult, you know, taking care of my wife. When you love somebody, you hate to see them hurt. And it's a daily thing, so... And you're watching each other hurt. We are. Yeah. We are, you know, but... Uh, as an engineer and, and a man, I feel like I should be a fixer, and I'm trying to do that. Thanks for talking with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being here tonight. I, I appreciate you giving the platform for this amazing team. The team is preparing for a tournament later this month in Denver that's been renamed for Kendrick. They'll compete with the robot we're standing next to, which Kendrick helped fabricate. But it needs fine-tuning, says one of Kendrick's teammates. I'm Corbin Baird. I am the design lead on the team. 
currently I am overseeing the design of a new claw um, or manipulator. After the last competition, we saw that there were a few design flaws with it. This claw, what is it supposed to do? So it has to uh, pick up hatch panels. Those are 18 inch diameter discs, about a quarter inch thick. They have a hole in the center of them. Our robot has to be able to grab onto them, take them over to what's called a cargo ship, and be able to uh, put them on the sides of the cargo ship to essentially keep the cargo, which are some uh, balls, from falling out of the ship. Now, this is a robot that Kendrick worked on. Yes. Did you work on it with him? I did work on it with him. Um, it was a great year, and uh, working on it with him was, um, it was very fun. It's always been fun. And how does it feel to be back in school at STEM? It feels pretty good. Um, the summer was a little boring. Um, there's quite a lot of things going on. To say it, the least, it was robbed from us. What do you mean the summer was robbed from you? Well, uh, because of the incident, we uh, kind of had to go to a lot of events that we would not have had to go to. It was kind of as if that month was gone from our lives. Corbin, what do you hope to do in your life, in your career? Um, well, I'm hoping to pursue a career in engineering. Still working on a college to go to, but it will be a good engineering college. Uh, my goal in my career is to uh, invent new technologies to help make the world a better place. STEM school senior Corbin Baird. Now, while Kendrick's father, John, grieves and advocates for improved school safety, Jack Graber, who has kids at STEM, has helped lead the robotics team. The first year my son joined the team, he told me I couldn't help out with the team. It was his thing. And the second year, he's like, okay, I'll let you help out. Just stay out of my way. <laughs> and uh, That sounds like a teenager to me. Yeah, yeah, it's totally a teenage move. And now I'm helping lead the team. It's, and he seems okay with that? So far. So yeah. far. And my daughter joined the team too, so they both seem to be okay with it. How do you feel, having returned to STEM since the attack, how, how do you feel as a parent of kids who go here? Hopeful. Um, Hopeful that we can, you know, move on, make the best of, of our situation. Um, what does making the best of it mean? Well, it was a very traumatic event. Um, hopeful that all the kids that were affected, all the parents that were affected, can find their way through the mess. Hopeful that I can help our kids on the team move through some of this. Hopeful that we can get through this and lead a good life. You see yourself as connected not just to your own kids biologically that are in this, but to all the kids, it sounds like to me. Yes. Yeah. The first thing we did after the shooting was round up all the kids in the team and get them together. and we kind of split up duties among all the mentors. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take care of the kids and you take care of this and you take care of this, so. Because this was obviously a tight-knit community and one that knew Kendrick well. Yes. Thanks for talking to us. Certainly. Jack Graber, dad and robotics mentor at STEM School Highlands Ranch. The team lost a key member in Kendrick Castillo earlier this year when the school came under attack. The team's now preparing for the Kendrick Castillo Memorial Tournament, September 28th at East High School in Denver. And we'll be right back with a challenge to get rid of plastic from disposable coffee cups. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late 80s, 
The AIDS epidemic started to take hold in gay neighborhoods in cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. For these people, marijuana was a cheap, accessible way to treat the symptoms of AIDS. Little did they know that they would pave the way for more than 30 states to legalize medical marijuana today. Medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic. On the latest episode of On Something, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Plastics. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. Black and plastic. It's fantastic. Plastic Week continues now with two especially tricky items, six-pack rings and disposable coffee cups. Now, maybe you're thinking, didn't we solve that six-pack thing a while ago to save turtles? Or maybe your reaction is, those coffee cups are paper. Yeah, but only partly. A company called Footprint is tackling both problems. They have connected with Coors on the ring thing, and they're part of a global challenge to design a better cup for your half-calf, upside-down, 105-degree latte. Troy Swope is Footprint's CEO. He joined me from his office in Phoenix. Troy, thank you for being with us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. You know, the EPA requires that all ring carriers in the United States be degradable. Uh, that rule's been in place for 25 years. Why are these things still a problem? Well, because there's different terms for degradability. There's biodegradability, compostability, and then there's marine degradability. And in the case of the plastic rings, it is intended to be photodegradable, which means if it sits in sunlight without being covered by dirt or water or anything, that it's supposed to degrade over time. And it's not time bound. So that could take 10 years, 20 years, 100 years. Uh, As long as at some point it degrades, it'll meet that requirement. So how does your ring differ and how does it work? Let me say that it's on Corey's craft label, Colorado Native. Well, number one, it is degradable, marine degradable, biodegradable, and it's going to degrade really quickly. If it got into a waterway, it wouldn't take very long for it to be gone, you know, hours. If it lasted a day, I'd be shocked, right? In our testing, it lasts about 12 hours in in a saltwater solution. Um, So the difference is it's paper-based, and it's a much stronger ring. And again, the end-of-life scenario is much, much better. And it's paper. So we do we need to be concerned about trees? Are we sort of swapping one thing for another? That's a great question. So we can use, number one, we're using recycled. So its intended purpose was a box. So if it was a tree, it was converted to a box, and we just take what's left over and convert it. But if we have also used wheat straw, hemp, fibers, it doesn't have to be trees. And sometimes we use a virgin newsprint. So what is intended for newsprint, but that industry is going way down. So there's abundance of newsprint. We like to use that as a mechanical, strong mechanical property. Wait, you're telling me that the dying of newspapers, which is painful to watch as a journalist, uh, that that might end up as a six-pack ring. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the strength. I can imagine uh, people being very frustrated if their beer is all of a sudden cascaded from their hands. How much of a challenge was it to create something that is not plastic but is also sturdy? Quite a challenge. The interesting thing is the cans themselves have quite a variation in size. You know, working with Coors, everything that goes to the UK and Canada, there's just a tremendous amount of range of sizes, which was surprising. And then to soak the cans in an ice chest for 24 hours and it's paper, right? Uh, And then be able to pull it out and hold it. That was challenging to get it to work. And then at the end, 
whatever we do to it, we don't want it to impact the end-of-life scenario. Yeah, this is fascinating. In other words, what you're saying is that the ring has to be able to withstand a cooler full of ice and not degrade, but degrade if it ever wound up in a lake or an ocean. Correct. Like, how many six-pack rings are ending up in the environment? I believe the Ocean Conservancy said last year that there was eight million tons of plastic on our shoreline at any one time. I mean, so I imagine quite a bit of that is six-pack rings. The biggest challenge is that we enjoy our beer camping on riverways at the ocean. And then we have this trash, right, that is very damaging to the, the local ecosystem. So we have to get over the years and years of innovation for cost, but innovate for the now a different end-of-life scenario. So what has driven companies heretofore is the bottom line. And now they seem to be singing a different tune, an environmental tune. Well, certainly the consumer is singing uh, an environmental tune, right? So, But we develop our solutions. We know long-term we're going to have to be at cost parity or better than plastic. Uh, we're very, very close today on price with plastic. We believe long-term we're going to be a, an economically better solution because our input materials, like I said earlier, wheat straws, we can use bamboos, bagasse, you name it. Bagasse, that's the residue left after like the extraction of juice from sugarcane. Correct. Yeah. So it's a fibery substance. We don't use a lot of agave today, but that is something that's widely used in Asia. There is some available in Louisiana and Florida. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about uh, building not a better mousetrap in this case, but a better six-pack ring that is not made of plastic. And uh, now we're going to move on to the idea of reusable coffee cups. Uh, my guest is Troy Swope. He's CEO of a company called Footprint. And Troy, you look at a coffee cup from something like, you know, Starbucks or your local coffee seller, and they look paper. And of course, they are paper. Uh, but help us understand what the particularly tricky thing is here. So people don't understand that their coffee cup, their ice cream, pint, those things are, are rolled paper. And when you see that rolled paper and you have a seam in that rolled paper, the way they seal that seam is we have a liner internally that's a polyethylene liner, so a plastic liner, which makes these things very, very difficult to recycle. There's a few companies in the country that will recycle it for you, but it's just not available you know, across the country or even worldwide. Right, and this is why Starbucks and McDonald's backed a global challenge, the next-gen cup competition, to design a recoverable cup. And your firm, Footprint, is one of the winners. 480 teams competed, I understand. Uh, what's your approach to uh, creating a cup that can be more easily recycled? Yeah, our strategy will, first and foremost, is, you know, similar to the six-pack rings, was, you know, we wanted to work on any bin you win. Any bin um, you win. Okay, that is any trash bin, it will have an end of life that is satisfactory. Absolutely. We had to give it to where it would work with, you know, hot coffees and, you know, the different solvents and bases of coffee and juice and, and other things, uh, soda. But it had to work. And in all those scenarios, we're successful. And so how did you uh, solve the question of this cup that has to do so much? Hot beverages, cold beverages, hazelnut syrup, milk, you know, uh, oat milk, whatever <laughs> it is. Yeah, I'm actually a Starbucks addict, so I'm, 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 gu I'm guilty here. We were a little bit cautious of thinking, do they really want to make a change here? You know, because it is just replacing the liner. We knew that there was going to be competitors that just 
came up with a new liner that's somewhat more recyclable. But we went about it saying we could offer a solution that's drastically different in the look and feel. We could have a stronger cup. We could have different geometries than a traditional rolled cup. And then through our innovations in frozen food, working with ConAgra, we had solutions that we knew were strong oil barriers and water barriers that the only innovation we really had to do was the form of, the, of, of a cup because it's taller and drastically different than any shape and size that we've done in the past. So we need some innovation around tooling. And the feedback that we're getting from in our trials and consumer feedback is that our cup's much stronger. In fact, some people think, do I throw this in the dishwasher when I'm done? Do I, huh. What do I do with it when it's just a traditional paper cup? And this, too, can be made from recycled paper? Yes. I'm curious what your view is on whether the market will drive these changes or whether government needs to be passing laws that tell companies to do this and to do it fast. I think the consumers are way ahead of the legislation. Now, California has done a reasonable job with legislation. I'm, I'm not a believer of legislating change. I'm, I believe consumers will drive change. And we got a really fastly educated consumer now. Millennials are just not going to buy oil and gas stocks. So you see that people are getting behind doing better. The attack on the plastic industry is not an attack on business. It's a call for America, which we're all we're amazing at, to innovate. How did you get into this? I, I understand that you used to work at Intel, the semiconductor manufacturing company, right? So the last seven years at Intel, I ran a materials organization, and we were transporting product, Intel's product, microprocessors across the world. And in doing that, we found that there was some real damage being done, and we were having to polish the product because of the outgassing of the packaging onto the product. And to just, just to be clear, in other words, the, the thing that was protecting the chips in shipping that was off-gassing to such an extent, it actually affected the chips. Correct. Technically, it's the raw material for the chips. That's actually what was getting damaged. But yes, correct. It was outgassing all over it, and we were having to polish it, the product, as it came into the Intel facility. It was very expensive. So I'm sitting at home, and my wife, we have four children, comes home from Costco, and she's unloading you know, the groceries, and we have a, tons of fruit on the table. And I'm looking at all of it's in plastic. Even cut fruit is in plastic. And I told her, I look at it, and I'm going, this is going to be bad. And so I said, hey, make sure you wash those, you know, pineapple spears and other things that are cut. She's like, well, they're cut. It's already washed. I'm like, it's not clean anymore. All I could think about is we're ingesting plastic constantly. And we're now getting that data, overwhelming amounts of data saying this is a real big problem. There's going to be a human health crisis associated with how much plastic we, we ingest. So I started grabbing really smart people from Intel going, can't we do something better than this? And it, it led to us creating Footprint. Well, thanks for explaining this to us. Nice to talk to you, Troy. Oh, nice talking to you. Troy Swope is CEO of Footprint, which has created a new kind of six-pack ring for cores. It's also developing a better disposable coffee cup with help from Starbucks and McDonald's. It's Plastic Week on Colorado Matters, and you can keep the conversation going with your questions through Colorado Wonders. Click the link in any of our Plastic Week stories to submit your questions. What if a commuter train connected Pueblo and Fort Collins with stops in Denver? A state commission has been working on just such a plan. Now there's new urgency to proceed. 
CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner speaks with Joanne Allen. Nathaniel, why are people pushing for this train? Well, proponents say it would be an important alternative to Interstate 25. And right now, that's basically the only option to get up and down the front range. And of course, with traffic, I-25 often doesn't feel that reasonable. And with population projected to keep growing, proponents say this would be a key way to take pressure off of the interstate and to cut down on air pollution from cars. It could operate on a much bigger scale than current bus service, too. And where would the train go? So the state wants service from Fort Collins to Pueblo and then a connection to Trinidad. But as far as exactly where the lines would be, what organization would operate them, how much it would cost, we don't really know yet. Well, that's interesting. When will we know? sometime late next year or even early 2021, maybe. The state just hired a consultant to do a service development plan that will study all of those things. Well, then, in fact, we're still early in the process. We are, yes, but we do know a few things. It would cost a lot of money to build the thing. We don't know exactly how much yet, but certainly we're talking about billions of dollars. Billions with a B? Yes, and we know that from past studies. There will likely need to be a public vote to raise taxes to help pay for that. But there's an interesting twist here that's worth talking about now. And some people on this state rail commission say they can't wait around for a new study to be finished. Like Sal Pace. He's a former state legislator and a Pueblo County commissioner. Uh, The political climate right now in Colorado is better than it's ever been uh, for implementing uh, Front Range Rail. Pace told the commission late last week that the way forward is for the legislature to create a new taxing district that covers only the front range. And he wants a funding measure on the 2020 ballot, just over a year away. So what's the rush? Pace and others on the commission think the electorate next year will be younger and more likely to vote yes on a funding ask. And they think the high turnout expected in the presidential year will help with that. Is there any downside? Well, there's just a lot this rail commission needs to figure out, like on funding. Should they do a sales tax or a real estate tax or both? They don't really know. Here's Randy Grauberger, the director of the Front Range Rail Project. In terms of any defined plan uh, in regard to the 2020 ballot, uh, there is no such plan yet at this point. There's just way too many variables at the early stages of, of our project. The commission has 11 members, and they need to come to an agreement first. And then they need to get it through the state legislature, and that's not a sure thing. Well, then what are lawmakers saying about this? Well, the Rail Commission gave a presentation to a legislative committee, and a possible funding measure didn't come up in discussion at all. So I asked a legislator about it after the fact. This is Kevin Priola, a Republican from Brighton. If they have a good plan and it's well thought out and it's uh, easy for the voters to understand, I wouldn't see why they they wouldn't want to have that conversation dialogue with, with the voters. So Priola is supportive of this train idea, and he says the longer the state waits, the more it's going to cost. He used the Denver International Airport as an example. He says city and state leaders in the 80s had the foresight to invest in the airport way back then, and it's paying off now. So, too, I think we need to look at having uh, move forward on our rail transportation. What is the governor saying about all of this? We don't know about the specific 2020 idea just yet, but we do know that Governor Polis has been very supportive of transit thus far. CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner is speaking with Joanne Allen about the possibility of front-range commuter rail. A lumpy newcomer has been showing up at the Boulder County Farmer's Market, a fruit somewhere between a muskmelon and a cantaloupe. It's known as the Greeley Wonder, 
Producer Paul Caroli found it's rooted in one family's farming legacy and was nearly wiped out. I got my first taste of the Greeley Wonder at the farmer's market outside Longmont last summer. It was sticky and sweet, but not too sweet, and it really stuck with me. The memory of that misshapen melon lingered through the winter and the spring, so when farmer's market season rolled around this year, I knew I had to figure out where it came from. We are on my great-grandfather's property. He planted a lot of the trees around here. Um, These trees over here, you know, are over 100 years old. Kyle Monroe's family has been farming this elevated piece of land southeast of Greeley since 1936. It's, It's hard to see with the trees right here, but when you go out a little bit, you can see Pikes Peak all the way into Wyoming past uh, Horsetooth in Fort Collins. And just with the lake and the cattle grazing on the neighbor's pasture, it's, it really is beautiful here. When Kyle was just a kid, the Greeley Wonder was nothing but a family legend. A story his grandfather told about how good some things used to be. Here's Kyle's mom, Jackie Monroe. We always talked about it because it was so, so much a part of who Jerry Monroe Sr., who he was as a farmer, was being known for these melons. Because as far as we know, we were the last ones to ever have it. We don't know of another farmer anywhere. Monroe family lore has it that this particular strain of melon was developed by farmers in Greeley around the turn of the last century. It might be a cross of the Emerald Gem and the Jenny Lind, but they're not so sure about that. What they do know is that Greeley Wonders were grown commercially starting around 1915. And it was another 15 years before Greeley Wonder Seeds ended up in the hands of Kyle's great-grandfather, Lester Monroe. How they got the seed to begin with was back in the 1920s, when Lester Monroe farmed on the north side of Greeley, there wasn't really seed companies to buy seed from. So neighbors and farmers saved their seed and either sold it or exchanged it for other seed. When the time came, Lester passed the Greeley Wonder and his love for all melons on to his son, Jerry. And Jerry passed it on to his son, Kyle's father, Jerry Jr. But over the years, things got a lot harder for family farmers like the Monroes. They watched as farms around them were bought up and merged, as consumer expectations for produce changed, as all the demand for irregular melons like the Greeley Wonder fell away. And then, one spring in the late 1980s, disaster struck. So when we planted the the initial planting, it got hailed out. It was totally destroyed. And we didn't know there was any more seed. So we thought we lost it. We thought it was gone. Jackie and Jerry Jr. knew that Jerry Sr. had sent some Greeley Wonder Seeds off to a group called Seed Savers in Iowa. But Kyle and his older sister were so young, it didn't seem like the right time to put in the work for such a, let's say, challenging melon. And the farmer's markets were new, and we wanted to get involved at that. And people are so used to grocery store produce being exactly the same size, exactly the same color, exactly the same shape. And so we needed to focus on trying to make a living. And so it just... It just wasn't a real priority at that time, but as we went along, we kept, gosh, it was wish we had that. Gosh, I wish we could, you know, get that seed back. And as we got older and older, it became more and more important to us to try to get that seed back. And that was that. For a while, no more Greeley Wonders in the Monroe family fields or any other fields anywhere. So 
the story actually started a couple of years ago when one of our employees was at uh, a conference. Philip Kauth is Director of Preservation at Seed Savers Exchange, as the group is formally known. And he was at the booth, and um, a woman by the name Jackie Monroe came up to him. So I asked them, I said, do you have this seed? And they went in, opened up this catalog, and they said, it's not here. So no, we don't know have it. And I said, but this is a very rare seed and you only have a hundred of them. So they might not be in a catalog. And they said, we're going to have to go back to the main office and look it up. And so Stefan came back here and he, he told our, our curator at the time. And um, we found out that we, we had it. We still had it. And the phone call I got in two weeks was electrifying is the only thing I can think of. And they just about went nuts when they found out that the original people who gave them the seed still lived in the area and would wanted to grow it again. And as fate would have it, it was around this time that Kyle felt the urge to poke around one of the dusty old storage areas of his grandfather's barn. It, it was right around here. Um, there were some old barrels that kind of were falling apart in here and on these shelves were just some small packets and the tin cans where the seed used to come in and uh, pushed all of that off and just covered in dust, blew the dust off and Greeley Wonder Cantaloupe, 1979. Kyle found a five-gallon bucket almost half full of thousands of Greeley Wonder seeds. I was ecstatic. Um, I ran and told my parents right away, you know, hey, I found this old seed and... and uh, you know, immediately my dad's like, yeah, he's like, we'll find a spot and we'll start growing it. From there, it was a simple process of clearing some space and planting some seeds. And then talking with seed savers, they told us how to save the seeds and how far apart they have to be away from other melons. So we went ahead and did that. And then that <laughs> that that fall just started cutting melons like crazy and just tried saving all that seed. And so um, they, they, uh, they donated a big sample of that back to, to Seed Savers Exchange um, last year. And so we, we've uh, replenished our seed inventory from... The Philip told me that Seed Savers' mission is to preserve these kinds of rare, heirloom, and open-pollinated varieties of produce. But for him, the Greeley Wonder stands out. Oh yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Like, whenever we have a family heirloom variety... In the collection, I mean that that is their precious that that's their prize variety, and they just think of the world of it. Uh, the great thing about this melon is that it it has a great story, but it also tastes really really good. It's just a really good tasting melon. As for the Monroes, they're happy to have the Greeley Wonder back in their fields. Lester grew it. Jerry Senior grew it. Jerry Junior and Jackie grew it as long as they could. Now it's up to Kyle Monroe to carry on the family tradition. We love what we do. We, we have a passion for feeding people. And we pass that on to our son. And we were just really hopeful that he would want to do it too someday. And kind of chokes me up a little bit. But when my husband, Jerry, told his father, Jerry Sr., that Kyle wanted to take over the farm... He just kind of sat there and grinned, and then he said, that's fantastic. And it was, it's, you could see how, how much he 
loved the idea of his grandson taking over the farm. <laughs> and that's kind of the story. <laughs> I'm Paul Caroli, reporting for CPR News. Well, maybe like me, after hearing that story, you want to try the Greeley Wonder. You'll have to wait until the next farmer's market season because the Monroe family sold out. The daily grind can stifle creativity, so something like an artist residency is an escape, an opportunity to be focused and productive in a fresh environment. But artists who are also parents often can't just take the time out from their everyday lives. CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg takes us to Peonia and a rare residency that welcomes parents and their children. Two and a half years after the birth of curious, red-headed Sebi, his mom, Bridget McAuliffe, is just starting to emerge from what she calls the cocoon. Where you do have moments where you're like, how am I ever going to do anything again? It's not just artists that feel that way, of course. But during her two-week residency at Elsewhere Studios in Peonia, she was able to do quite a lot. The program provides money for childcare, so she had the bandwidth to develop her latest work, documenting food producers of the North Fork Valley, with video, ceramics, music, and other mediums. I feel so alive when I'm immersed in a project and I know that it's who I am and what I should be doing because I totally lose track of time. She's so happy in those moments and says she feels the same way about raising Sebi who in turn does not feel that way about her giving interviews. It's been great. Help you? (laughs) Get up and help me. (laughs) Can you say please? Please. (laughs) Family is not welcome at the vast majority of artist residencies, but elsewhere wanted to do something different, and for the first time used a grant this summer from the Sustainable Arts Foundation, whose whole mission is to support parent artists. The result was elsewhere opening itself up to artists, mostly mothers, who may not have had access to it otherwise. As a single mom, Ukana Nsale Malandu says she often has to explain herself even being in certain creative environments. The center of your world is meant to be your children. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to like even try and perform that. And your children couldn't be here due to visa issues. Insali Malandu has traveled the world and had a lot of success in her home country of South Africa, where she says her live art installations about trauma, gender roles, and decolonization have been well-received. But she says the financial reality of being an artist and a mother is scary. Because there aren't enough resources um, geared towards making sure that People, women who are mothers, you know, are supported. They have the space to create. They have the space to explore. Spanish-born artist Maria Velasco says the family residency is a chance to talk about the challenges of being an artist mother and to hear about resources and just to know that others are in the same boat. People have maneuvered these roles in different ways. 
but it is very inspiring to me to see that there's no need to give up. Velasco, a professor at the University of Kansas, is actually making a documentary asking the question of how to be an artist and a parent at the same time. And she's living one answer. During the residency, she and her nine-year-old son, Alex, are collaborating on a project. I'm watercolor and painting, like, the outside of Elsewhere, Elsewhere Studios. For a hand-drawn card game they're making, a tribute to Elsewhere's whimsical courtyard, hobbit-like buildings, and a charismatic cat named Tomatoes, something they came up with together. It's really quite beautiful, you know, to have a sounding board and someone that you can create... um, Uh, you know, an idea from scratch with. And as for Alex? It's definitely better than me staying at home. Grr. (laughs) Recently, Velasco decided she's only applying to family-friendly residencies from now on. Where, you know, I don't have to choose between my job and my kid and the content of my work and keep all those areas separate um, because that doesn't make any sense to me. Bringing all these aspects of herself together here at Elsewhere has changed her, Velasco says. I don't have to hide, you know, who I am and my family. And Just then, Sebi's little kid murmurs float in from the next room. And I love those sounds. <laughs> in Peonia, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Mobile home parks are an important source of affordable housing. We talked Monday about how vulnerable the residents can be to eviction. The Colorado Sun has been running a special report. It reminded me of an interview we did a while back with a woman who grew up in a mobile home park. Angie Cavallari's family owned parks in Florida with names like Placid Lakes, Pelican, and Chalet. Many of the homes were rentals, so Cavallari had the sometimes filthy job of cleaning up after tenants, but she also got close to them. She now lives in Colorado and has written Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. Angie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're so careful to point out that no one in the mobile home park business uses the term trailer. Yet you call your book Trailer Trash. Yes. Why? Well, there was two reasons. It was literally trailer trash. It was one of the jobs that I had in addition to snaking toilets and mowing lawns. But um, Was to remove trash from... The mobile home park. Yeah, it was it was waste management services. We did that ourselves. My parents in Chapter 10, um, the title is actually waste management. <laughs> and my parents did not want to pay those fees. So me, my brother, my sister, and my mom all picked up trash, like went to these metal trash cans and took the trash out. So it wasn't just it wasn't just taking out the trash. It was taking it all the way to the dump. This is literal trailer <laughs> trash. Yes. And what would you find in that trash that maybe gave you some insight into the residence? Um, well, you try not to look. Um, most of the time you held your nose and you try not to look too closely at the trash. I only really noticed it if they never used a bag. Some people would throw old food, um, old pans of grease that are caught on fire directly into the trash can. No bag, nothing. It drove me crazy. <laughs> okay, so that's one reason you use this term yes. trailer trash. What's the other one? Well, I think the other reason would be, and I, I didn't mean it to be a negative connotation. In fact, I had a better understanding of how different people lived at different levels of society. So I had a better understanding of that. It was not meant to be derogative. It was just meant to be literal. But it was also to kind of shed light on the fact that maybe we should be treating these people a little bit better. It's a term that's been out there for a long time. You think that there's a lot of stigma around mobile home parks? Yes, I do. What is the stigma? And 
contrast that for me with the reality. So I did just read a story a couple months ago. There's been some residents here that have been displaced. Yes, that's right. Many mobile home parks in Colorado mm-hmm. are sort of having to make way for other development. And this is a, a storehouse for affordable housing in, in the metro area and and beyond. Yeah. And, and, and I definitely, I have nothing but empathy for what they're going through because a lot of the tenants that were in our trailer park as well, I mean, they didn't really have anywhere else to go that they could afford. So I, from that aspect, I, I totally get their side of it. I don't think it's fair. There certainly should be some parameters in place to protect them so that they're not out of house and home because it's not easy when you're not making a decent wage to immediately find another place. Hey, you know, no problem. We'll just move over here. It's it's very difficult. But the other side of it is, you know, as someone that had to do the lawn mowing and had to do the maintenance in the trailer parks, it would be nice if you did mow the lawn. <laughs> it would be nice if you maybe put your trash in a bag. Yeah, that would be great. That would have been nice for me. Especially if it's kids emptying. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. And they knew that. They knew me. They're like, hi, Angie. Good morning. I'm like, hi. Notice you didn't use a trash bag. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about some of the tenants. I'm actually Mm going to have you read a bit from Chapter 3, where you describe a woman named Florence. Uh, Yes, and she was actually, I want to say she was probably my favorite tenant. She was just fascinating to me, so. Okay. Yeah, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This is Chapter 3, The Tenants. Perhaps the most memorable tenant I knew was Florence, and we were warned never to call her Flo or risk a backhand to the head. Her lot sat smack dab on the south side of her yard, and during the eight years that I lived there, I never saw her sober. She always seemed to be coming and going from her many trips to and from the liquor store or the local watering holes, much to my father's chagrin. You may have not heard her leave, but you always heard her return, because she would take out the metal trash cans and stray cats with her 1970s pale blue rusted-out Cadillac. (laughs) On many occasions, my father decided to perform a more subtle intervention by filling her gas tank with water while she slept off the Colt 45. Florence had held a strange fascination for me and my sister. For starters, I could never figure out her age. She may have only been in her early 60s, but I would place her around 78 in booze years. And she wasn't the kind of sweet old lady who wanted to connect with children or keep butterscotch candies in a faux crystal jar for younger guests. Most days, Florence would proudly sport a halter top sans a brazier and briskly march across her yard in crudely trimmed cut-off jeans, her cheap flip-flops flailing off her feet and her sagging breasts bouncing in cadence to her determination to find an escape through a good time. Why was she your favorite? Um, well, you know, you have to understand, I mean, these these mobile homes or trailers, they, they don't, I wouldn't even call it a yard. It's more like a little side area, mm. you know, so... To say that she was in my yard, I mean, she wasn't just my next-door neighbor. I mean, she was she was part of my life. I mean, we shared a yard, if you want to call it a yard. So she was she was just a different person. Um, she didn't she just seemed angry all the time, but she was so jovial when she left. So she was heading to the bars, and she really was trying to escape life. I mean, she wanted nothing to do with anyone. She wouldn't make eye contact. Um, she would just go straight to her car, and I always wondered how different or how much of a good time she was having because she was so miserable whenever I saw her. But I knew she was having a good time because the other tenants would talk about her. So she would be, you know, she'd go to the bars and have a great throw down. I'm like, wow, she was, she had two lives. You know, these days there's a lot of cachet to the tiny house movement. Yes. 
there are TV shows about it. You see these tiny homes in architectural magazines. And I have to say, in our newsroom, we often contrast the kind of hipster tiny homes with the original tiny home, which is mo- <laughs> mobile homes. You know, one is vaunted. The other is so stigmatized. How much did you feel that stigma as a kid? Were you embarrassed? Very much. And Uh in fact, I I did not ever talk about where I lived. I mean, I just never wanted anybody to see my house. It was like, you know, Molly Ringwald, right? She was freaked out. She didn't want Blaine to see where she lived. (laughs) I mean, I I went through great pains to hide that because I didn't just go to the local public school. I went to private schools that were very, very far away with kids that were from affluent neighborhoods. So I didn't even have like a middle class, regular class. It was just going from pretty low on the totem pole to all of a sudden. I mean, everybody I went to school with had a lot of money. Did they ever find out? Yeah, I'm sure they did. I mean, you know, my parents, it was it was their business. So I'm sure they did. It was also your grandparents' business. Yes, yes. And they bought a mobile home park in a place, I guess, considered the carny capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Presumably, this is where they lived when they were not on the carnival circuit. Correct. Where is the carny capital of the world? Gibsonton, Florida. Gibsonton. Okay, I went down a rabbit hole (laughs) with Gibsonton. Did you? This is from Wikipedia. (laughs) So we we have to be cautious, but some of this is confirmed by your book. Mm -hmm. The town was home to Priscilla the Monkey Girl... And the Lobster Boy, Siamese twin sisters, ran a fruit stand here. Uh, That's no longer the term of art, by the way, conjoined twins. Those aren't my words. At one time, Gibsonton was the only post office with a counter for dwarves. Hmm. Gibsonton offered unique circus zoning laws that allowed residents to keep elephants and circus trailers on their front lawns. I think you witnessed this. Yes. Um, And at least on our street, it was a Ferris wheel. And it was a true story. He had a Ferris wheel. My neighbor did. In fact, I talk about in my second book, which I'm working on right now. Um, and I actually played spin the bottle for the first time behind a Ferris wheel that you would have seen at any carnival. What a strange and wonderful childhood. <laughs> I think it's partly why I enjoyed so much reading the book. OK, the subtitle of your book is an 80s memoir. Mm-hmm. 80s music and TV feature prominently. I want to play something for you. Oh, boy. What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with a case pending in a California municipal court. Both parties have agreed to dismiss their court cases and have their disputes settled here in our forum, the People's Court. The People's Court. (laughs) Why did this show feature so prominently for you as a kid? So in one of the um, chapters, I do talk about the evictions because we were we also played our own lawyers. So when you evict someone, it's a lengthy process. It's not like, hey, you haven't paid your rent in a month, like you're out. It takes a lot of time. You have to go to court. You have to prove that they haven't paid. Um, you have to try to collect and at least show that you have, you know, gone out, just in earnest have asked for the money. So we you were would... living people's court. Yes, exactly. That's why my parents were drawn to it. I don't know if they got any legal advice from watching it, but we loved watching it because there were there were dog bites. There were people that would argue about non-payment. What lessons do you carry with you today that you learned 
growing up in mobile home parks? Well, I, I definitely, I, I still struggle with where I fit in society, to be honest with you, because when you're raised in that environment, but you're going to these schools and you see two different worlds, you, you're not sure where you fit in. And I still don't know where I fit in. I mean, I live in the suburbs today, and that's not a sacrifice for my children, but I still don't feel like I fit in there either. I don't think I ever will. But the one thing I took away from was humanity. I mean, these are people. These are not just... Um, you know, in some situations, it's not that they just fell on hard times. Yeah, maybe they chose that, but they weren't lazy or there's not the stigma that they don't care about where they live. And I think that's kind of lost when people think of, um, you know, lower on the totem pole in society or people that live in mobile home parks or trailers. Um, and I don't want them to, I don't want people to look at them that way. It, it gave me a lot of humanity and understanding. Do you think that your experience in the mobile home parks was similar to your siblings? Unfortunately, I'm estranged from my family. I, I will tell you that growing up, their attitude was also that they were very embarrassed as well. Um, you know, because, again, I mean, it, it, it was not this was not a retirement community like my grandparents owned. They had more than one trailer park. This was this. These were not retirees. These were not what you think. These were not nice old ladies with bow crystal jars, you know, with candies. It just wasn't that environment. So. But there is that environment of Christ among mobile home parks. There is. And, yeah. and my one of my grandmother's trailer parks, I loved it. It was full of retirees. And, you know, they loved kids. They didn't see their grandkids that much. And they were snowbirds. And, yeah, they were fantastic. And I saw and I actually saw two different worlds in the casing of mobile home parks. It was wild. Denver author Angie Cavallari has written Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir we spoke in December. Finally today, a moment to reflect on a headline that made me gasp when I read it. Cokie Roberts, the pioneering NPR and ABC News journalist and commentator, has died of complications from breast cancer. She was 75. Most recently, she gave Americans the long view with a segment on Morning Edition. And it's clear from social media today that many of us will miss the chance to ask Cokie. That's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.